Blockchain and Bitcoin are usually seen as projects that will live or die in the private sector, but governments and international institutions are also involved, either to impose order on a confusing collection of groups and enterprises, or to encourage them to create tech jobs and profits. Today, we're going to hear about how those issues are playing out in the European Union. My guest is Petrus Zilgalvis, who is head of the Digital Innovation and Blockchain Unit at the European Commission. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Welcome, Petrus, and thanks for doing CoinGeek Conversations. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to talk to you. Can we start, for people who are not that familiar with the way that the European Union is organized, let's just have a quick word about the European Commission, which is who you work for, uh, which means you're not a politician, you're, you're a, can I say, an official? Yes, I mean, the European Commission, we are led by political leaders, the commissioners, who are usually former prime ministers, ministers of finance, other types of politicians in their countries. They're the political leadership who are appointed by the member states, and they change with each term of the commission, uh, led by a president. We now have President von der Leyen. Uh, Working for them, you have a permanent civil service along with some contractual experts who have been hired, and I'm a part of the the permanent civil service. I'm in a part that's called DG Connect, uh, Communications Networks, Content and Technologies, also known as the Digital Single Market. So we're the digital policy and digital economy people where most of us, like myself, not not programmers. And then in that, I'm in the Digital Single Market Directorate, which is the main policy directorate running the legislation and policy and running a unit called Digital Innovation and Blockchain. Additionally, I'm co-chair of the FinTech Task Force, which reaches across the whole commission coordinating our fintech policy in all these directorate generals. So you receive uh, guidance and and requests from political leaders to investigate various subjects and to come up with recommendations about how the sector should be organized. Is that roughly how it works? Yes, or requests to legislate eventually or work on infrastructure projects, research management, uh, this range of activities. Now, you've talked, I've seen in uh, previous uh, speeches and things, about an interesting sort of uh, dilemma that, that, that you find yourself in, in a way, which is between regulating on the one hand, which, which has a slightly sort of restricting kind of uh, association and encouraging on the other to encourage innovation how do you how do you balance those those two directions that you're trying to go in at the same time well first of all we don't rush in and secondly we try to take a technology neutral approach not rushing in is in for example if we talk about the blockchain or tokenization Um, Some of us have been aware of it uh, since around 2012, maybe a little bit earlier, I would say 2012, 2013, very much for for myself. Um, I was actually a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford, St. Anthony's College, and was working on fintech and uh, 
following the innovation uh, initiatives of the FCA and wrote about blockchain and, and fintech and then returned to the commission. Um, and we've been seeing how the market develops, how the technology develops since then. If it was ever true that it moves uh, the European Commission regulated, it, it hasn't. Otherwise, this would have been already seven years ago. We waited to see how the demands of the community for a pro-innovation framework, which is what we support, could be met. And then we had the public consultation recently on uh, crypto assets, digital assets, tokenization. And we have a, uh, a public consultation open right now on the so-called Digital Services Act, which includes questions on smart contracts, also on blockchains. And then this leads me into my second point, is that we're technology neutral. While in our industrial policy, we support investment and uh, infrastructures, for instance, in artificial intelligence, blockchain, IoT, 5G. Uh, we're not going to have a regulation on blockchain the same way we don't have a regulation on transistors or on servers or on other, uh, to say, items of technology. There probably will be an exception for artificial intelligence because of exactly how far-reaching it is. But on the subjects that I'm directly in charge of, we will look at applications like tokenization, which have great potential, have some possible problems, but we're looking more at very much the positive upside and the demands for legal clarity that we're getting from the community. And then secondly, on smart contracts, where very much the question is still very open, does anything need to be said about it legally? But we're asking, especially in the cases of cross-border use across you know, the 27 countries of the EU, for instance, if there are problems that perhaps need to be addressed, ensure you don't have to have a different uh, type of smart contract or a different registration in many different jurisdictions. Uh, so, so you're, on the whole, trying to take a sort of... Uh... Uh, hands-off approach and, unless otherwise the situation requires it. But you've also said that um, you want to avoid a situation in this sector where uh, something goes wrong and then no one is responsible for that. Um, can you say a little bit more about that and what that might involve? Well, that's, I think, if you talk about the decentralization, which we see as a range between probably two theoretical extremes of something being completely decentralized or completely centralized. I mean, we have our own infrastructure project, the European Blockchain Services Infrastructure with 29 countries, which will be nodes at the country level, probably uh, ministry level, eventually municipality and regional level, so hundreds and maybe even thousands of nodes. So compared to a lot of things, quite decentralized for a cross-border public service, but not completely decentralized to each individual. And then you have things like Bitcoin and other decentralized protocols out there, uh, who we also want to encourage uh, decentralization and decentralized systems, Ethereum and others to flourish and innovate in Europe. Just to interrupt that, in case people slightly missed that, um, the European uh, Blockchain Services Infrastructure Project, which you mentioned, that is a project of the European Union to encourage European Union countries to uh, get involved in a central 
blockchain infrastructure. Is that right? Um, I, might, I might not use the word central because okay. by definition, it's <laughs> decentralized. Central decentralized. I mean, we'll have yeah. thir- 30 plus nodes at the, at the beginning. And right. for instance, the European Commission node will not be more important than the Estonian node or the Italian well, node or nodes. That's from um, a technical yeah, no, right. point of view. But from, it, a, exactly. but from an organizational point of view, it's, yes. it's organized centrally by the European Union to encourage countries with, to use with, blockchain with, right? with all the with all the countries and I would say yeah. not encourage but to actually deploy we're deploying the first use cases this year not piloting but we'll be moving into deployment and this is in the areas of reg tech in the areas of diploma um, certification and also self-sovereign identity and audit document uh, authentication and publication. So that's very much doing it together. But again, I, I do underline, I mean, I am have been and am a sort of a chair from the side of the European Commission, but there's co-chairs from the member states and actually even all the countries that are not co-chairs at the moment because it's a rotating co-chairmanship are all, are all equal. And this is, it's the philosophical part of it. It really is multi, multi-level governance, and so not being run from Brussels, even though when, when we could meet, uh, we were meeting often in Brussels, but also in other places like uh, Malaga, Spain, for instance, when we had the Convergence World Blockchain Congress. But so that's this multi-level governance side. So again, not centralized in one place, but 30 places. The infrastructure that you're talking about in that project, will that be publicly owned? Or how will it interact with the private sector? Um, Two considerations. One, right now, it's in the European Commission starting it. Uh, We foresee it having its own legal personality. And at that point, which is a couple of years ahead, it will probably be in some form of an agreement or a legal act with the member states and the European Commission all participating. And in the ministerial declaration that the ministers signed um, setting up the European Blockchain Partnership, there was a provision for a public-private partnership on it as well, which has yet to start. We The use cases are approved by all the countries and, and by us together. Um, no proposal has come yet that has gained the uh, acceptance of all the all the parties. So this is something that I'm sure will come soon. So y- there will be a possibility for either as a partner in the blockchain partnership or maybe more likely as a separate agreement with, let's say, a big part of the private sector of Europe to have this common side chain or project, as I say, I can foresee something that has not yet been agreed. Right. But to start with, then, are the member states uh, buying their own servers and setting up a blockchain that is a public blockchain? Or how how does that what, what does it come down to in terms of the actual technology and ownership of the of the equipment needed? Well, the, 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 no, the nodes are in servers in the member states for kind of the infrastructure right now it's basically more the use cases at this moment though there's a a pre-commercial procurement we're doing a procurement on the protocol layer right now it'll open in in quarter three right now it's more the use case work on the basis of at the moment hyperledger fabric and on ethereum enterprise 
though this is not foreclosed at all, that we'll only be working on those blockchains. Uh, the pre-commercial procurement is open. And then in the next budgetary period of the European Commission, we will probably do an innovation procurement. And it's open to any protocol layer, any blockchain. We will make uh, we will make the choice, and it could be on several blockchains. We're very much open. There's obviously a lot of thinking and internal papers and studies that have gone into this, but we're doing it in a very flexible way to encourage innovation and also to get the best service for the public citizens for the public services to the citizens. In the end, do you have a view or about? the relative merits of public and private blockchains within this? Well, overall, we want to encourage the innovation of both kinds. This one, because you have things like regulatory reporting of value-added taxes and custom excises, excise taxes and so on. I mean, this will be a permission one, very widely permissioned for a governmental public sector blockchain, but will, it will not at all be a decentralized one that anyone can join, let's say, as a validating node. To use the services, probably anyone present in Europe who would use a public service will be able to have access to it, but the validating nodes will probably stay within those who have the uh, have made the agreement, these are the member states themselves or eventually some private partners. Um, this is why I put it on the, the side towards centralized, but for, again, a cross-border government service, quite decentralized. Then the ones where anyone can join, um, these we want to encourage in Europe. And there you have to have the thinking on the tokenization, which the legislative initiative they're coming out with uh, now on the, the digital app assets or crypto assets, depending on how you want to call them. And then further on the smart contract, how can you do this? But at the same time, as you say, um, if there is an issue that people are selling things that are stocks or bonds, let's say on a, on a decentralized blockchain, it's not good enough to just say, if this becomes widespread, oh, it's buyer beware, no one is, no one is responsible. So we're, we're listening, obviously, where there's different interests, uh, we can't necessarily make everyone happy. But the idea is very much to have these types of blockchains also in Europe and to have them uh, take off and not to try to, to, to shut things down. I, I can see that from a political point of view, it's important that you are, to some extent, um, leaving your projects open to the market to provide possible solutions and, and not to... Um, decide on one possible solution. But where I work at CoinGeek, we support uh, Bitcoin SV. I mean, I'm not just waving the flag for that here, but the, but the thinking is that if this thing is going to work at scale, it'll work because everybody congregates around one particular solution. And that will give you the efficiency of all the, the uh, different uh, functionality that that can be used and the different people can interact across the same blockchain but in your mind is there a thought that eventually this will narrow down to one efficient solution that everybody can take advantage of 
I mean, this is where also we have to see how the market will will develop because you get uh, very many predictions. I think almost everyone agrees, whichever analysis uh, set of analysis you read, that there will be less blockchains than there are now less blockchain projects. Um, some go as far to say, as saying there will be one decentralized blockchain that will be in the world, that's what obviously, we say. if it, <laughs> so and, and, and I mean, I could quote other people who I won't who, who say it's a different one that will be the one that will that will be uh, that that will stay. And then this is where we have to be humble as well as civil servants. I mean, I I think I know a bit about this, but I, I would not posit that I know everything by any means. So that's why we have this certain flexibility mm-hmm. we also probably would find it easier to be working on the basis of one blockchain not two or three um, but we have to see because also as well our use cases are such we have some that will be very open really to every citizen i mean at least in in uh, as an option, uh, the self-sovereign identity. And then there's others, as I say, some of the regulatory reporting, which is from a relatively finite number of entities, of uh, institutions that have to report to their national authorities and eventually to the European level, and where it has to stay just by the definition of what is happening uh, uh, fairly narrow and very secure. So in accommodating these things, we have to have a certain type of flexibility, which, again, doesn't mean that it's all not going to be with the the same protocol layer in in the future. But we have to have have various options out there. And then, again, to see how the market is going to develop, whether there will be competition between three or four blockchains, competition on the basis of one blockchain, but with different applications layers competing. Um, This we cannot either predetermine, we can shape the market a little bit by showing that there's public sector demand, there's government demand, which is maybe a, a positive jolt to the to the market. But in the end, I think uh, the market will develop in the direction that overall consumers, uh, consumers want. And then again, hopefully respecting uh, some of the parameters that we have uh, in this case, to, to paraphrase a little bit of quote from a colleague at the Securities Exchange Commission. So the other side of the Atlantic, but saying, you know, our society has agreed that investors need to be protected and consumers need to be protected. We don't have a mandate to say that that is over. And it's the same for us. Right. Um, you don't have to over paternalize the consumer or the investor, but there needs to be both transparency and there needs to be some way to deal with things that if something goes wrong, again, but not in an overly burdensome or hopefully even burdensome way. Um, I mean, the other side of your work is in encouraging new projects by actually investing in them. And I, you have there's a fund which has, I think, got 100 million euros to be invested initially. That's going to go up to 400 million euros, I think. Um, and I've seen one example of uh, what, what's going on with that. It's a, a blockchain-based social media uh, project. Um, what's the thinking behind that? Why does the European Union need to be involved in this rather than just these startups trying to get money from venture capitalists? 
Um, this is going back to our analysis in a broader sense of how important venture capital is for the innovation economy and actually to the history of, uh, of venture capital, um, which also in the U.S. started very much with government support for the first venture capital. You're thinking capital of uh, ARPANET actually, in, ahead of the Internet and stuff like that, I guess. ARPANET as well, but also for the venture capital uh, companies. I think it was the Small Business um, Initiative, uh, SBIR, I believe it was called. I have to look back. One of the books behind me is uh, (laughs) Venture Capital uh, and American History. Right, so venture capital itself needs a bit of venture capital, really. So you have, I mean, both on the national level from countries like like France and, and not only, and also from us. We, in the directions of high technology especially, uh, the U.S. did this, does this, and we are doing this to ensure that there is money out there. But a very important moment is, though the idea came from from my unit, also from me, that we need an AI blockchain uh, investment fund to invest in equity, especially in these areas, in startups that are scaling. The money goes out through the European Investment Fund and goes out to venture capitalists who make the choices with no interference from us. And I mean, no, how to say, direct oversight. Obviously, you have the standard fraud, et cetera, oversight. I mean, this is not an area where I know of any any problems uh, like that. But uh, this goes out through the people who are venture capitalists and who do this for a living. This is not the civil servant lawyer in Brussels deciding, I think this company should get it. We have another one coming up on green tech, another area that we think that because of the EU green deal, we need also equity uh, investments in this area. We see the private sector doing it, but not as much as in Silicon Valley, not as much as other types of investment as well in China. So we're giving a a push. And I mean, actually, this has as well been a a beneficial experience for the European Commission that often um, this is a a vibrant sector and this is not a, a loss of financing. But now I'm talking about the support for the European Investment Fund and the European Investment Bank overall. One of the characteristics of this sector is its global nature, I think. And um I see that you uh, are speaking at the Asia Blockchain Summit, uh, which well you would have mean would have meant you were going to Taipei in Taiwan, I think. But um, what what is can you summarize your message um, to the international community about uh, about your work within the EU? I mean, I think we want to take a leading role in blockchain, encouraging it, encouraging this type of innovation in Europe. Though obviously in collaboration, if you talk about the European blockchain services infrastructure, we already have strong cooperation between uh, with Canada and Japan, for instance, and we're open with other countries. We're humble, as I mentioned, so we want to make sure we have services deployed and fully running in Europe before we start uh, implicating other partners in the actual service, but it's definitely foreseen to do that, especially with the countries, again, that we work closest with first. But I mean, again, this is this is open to the world in terms of our legislation. Um, obviously, it's not easy 
to gain agreement, for instance, on uh, crypto assets uh, immediately, if ever, at a global level, but by adopting if the commissioners decide this or political leaders decide this legislation in Europe, we will then proceed to dialogue on that basis with North America, with Asia, with other countries. And I mean, the closer that we can be on these requirements, uh, the better, because as well, we're happy to see our applications uh, utilized elsewhere, as well as to have the consumer choice for uh, for our citizens here. Again, with the the classic, uh, I just say caveat or or uh, I just say concern about the protection of you know a, a wallet that is that is hacked and and so on. So again, making sure that those who are marketing to European citizens can live up to to what they're offering. But again, the the arms of our, our law only reach so far, but transparency and international collaboration can do a lot to ensure that as well. I mean, that, that blockchain and tokenization and smart contracts have a good reputation and that this is something that, uh, how to say, encourages more business opportunities. We should finish in a sec, but perhaps I could just end by asking you to step back from 2020 and and give me a view of where you think we are in relation to the development of this sector because there's been talk of bitcoin and blockchain for for many years now have we reached a point where it's reaching mainstream acceptance or is there a danger that it was sort of last year's big buzzword where do you see the general um level of interest in this sector compared to how it was and, and how you think it will be in the next few years? I mean, I think we're at a, at a healthy moment. Uh, the time when there was so much hype where you were going to a, a blockchain seminar or something and it felt like a, a rock concert with uh, people cheering because they thought they were all about to become millionaires was had some positive sides, but I think was was a little bit unhealthy with uh, unrealistic uh, expectations. I think we're at a point now where the investment and the projects that are going forward are realistic ones. They're ones that are really offering a added value to a citizen, to a consumer. And I mean, we're very convinced that uh, blockchain can do a lot, for instance, for public services, not every single public service, um, but especially where you have a, a big group of actors, a big group of countries or other entities coming together. And we think the same in, uh, in the private sector where you really need to coordinate a, a big group of people who don't share a common uh, database or a common centralized authority, that it can be a, a great technology. And especially where it starts coming together with artificial intelligence, IoT data, there's some uh, very interesting possibilities out there. So I think a realistic, uh, optimistic time is one that we're in now and that the hype is is dying down, which is healthy in a way. Well, Pedras, thank you so much for talking to me and um, very good luck with your work and uh, much appreciated your time today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for inviting me. Thank, thank you again. Thanks Have a nice a lot. day. Bye now. Bye. Many thanks to Petrus Zilgalvis, head of the Digital Innovation and Blockchain Unit at the European Commission. 
If you wouldn't mind liking, sharing, or subscribing to CoinGeek Conversations, we'd be very grateful, as that lets us reach more people. Thanks very much for listening, and please join me, Charles Miller, again next week. Till then, goodbye.